I sure hope that, that you have been blessed by the last seven months that we have been studying the Gospel of Mark. Because I know my heart has been rejoicing because any time that you look at a book, I mean, all you have to do is look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And who's the central character of every single one of those books? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been studying the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ over these last seven months, and, and it just brings joy to, to your, your soul. And, and really what it does, is it, it leaves us with, with wonder and an amazement at how incredible our Lord and Savior is. And, and we get to see, we've been seeing the depth of His love for sinners. You know, Paul penned in, sec- in the second half of Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I taught on the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus two weeks ago and the implications that that, that has on every single believer, what that does in our life. You see, we, we have eternal life in Jesus Christ because of the atoning sacrifice that he took on our behalf when he went to the cross. He fully knew that he was born to die, so that he could live a sinless, perfect life, the life that we could never live. And because of that sacrifice on the cross, where he bore the full brunt of the Father's wrath towards sin for everyone who would believe, you and I, as believers, can rejoice in the fact that we have eternal life in Christ. So that means because of what Christ did on the cross, when God looks at us, He doesn't look at our sin. Rather, He looks to the imputed righteousness that Christ gave us. So it's as though we had never sinned, even though we all sin every day and we deserve hell by God's grace because of Christ's sacrifice. We are redeemed, and we are his children. I mean, what a glorious exchange. Have you ever just really thought about the exchange that took place on the cross? All of our sins nailed to the cross bore through Christ the penalty that you deserve, that I deserve in an eternity in hell. Christ took it, and in exchange, he imputed his righteousness to us as though we had never sinned, even though we have. That is the glorious exchange that took place. That is exactly how much Christ loves sinners. Do you thank God for your salvation every day? I mean, do you long to see your Savior face to face when you will be with Him forever in eternity? without sin, on your face, worshiping Him. Do you long for that day? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness so that you will become more like Christ, so that you can be used of God every day to get out into this world, to open your mouth, to be a bold ambassador for Jesus Christ? That's why we're here. Think about it. You're not here to have a great life. You're not here to have wealth, health, and happiness. You are left behind as believers in Jesus Christ to open your mouth and present the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. Otherwise, God would have taken you home already. So we need to remember that. That's what our purpose is as a believer. Yes, God has allowed us to have enjoyable things in life. But that's not our pursuit. Our pursuit is holiness. You are to be holy for I am holy. That's what God tells us. So as we pursue Christ-likeness, we become more like him each day. And we have that, just as Pastor Tom was teaching, we have that desire more and more. We hate our sin. We hate what God hates and we love what he loves. And the thing that God loves is the proclamation of his truth, of his gospel. So I urge all of us, and I'm preaching to myself, we all need to be faithful to get out, even if it's beyond our comfort zone, 
You know, I, I want to give you a challenge. I want to challenge everyone here in this room, and this is a challenge to me too. I've heard this said before, and it crushed me. Someone said, hey, if I were to give you $1,000 for one week, $1,000 every single time that you would go out and present the gospel, would you do it? Everybody's like, of course. And I'm thinking, man, I'd be a millionaire. I'd be out the woo, 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 woo. And he goes, well, so let me ask you this question. If you'll present the gospel for the love of money, how come you won't present the gospel for the love of God? Think about that this week. When God brings someone your way to open your mouth, pray for it. Lord, I don't know how to start the conversation. Start the conversation for me. And God will do it. And it's easy to turn that very physical conversation to a spiritual conversation. We need to be ready. We need to be going for it. That's why we're left behind. Because we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which God has called us to be holy, to be his people, to be a chosen generation that will go forth boldly and proclaim his truth. May we never, ever grow wearisome of learning more and more about our magnificent Savior and our Lord. That's why this morning I've, I've titled today's lesson, Jesus Christ is the amazing astonishing, awe-inspiring Son of God. And I get the daunting task of bringing forth a passage that should not be in the Bible. So you won't hear me say, open up your, the Word of God, which is inerrant and infallible to this passage. But I will say, open up the Word to Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. I will read it and then we will study it together. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. So as I said, this passage should not be in the Bible. You might think, well, why? Why would I say that? Why would I say that? I do so because this passage is not found in the most reliable ancient manuscripts. One commentator says, careful students who have made a serious study of the transmission of the biblical text would virtually all agree that verses 9 through 20 are a gloss, a later uninspired scribal edition appended to the original inspired index. And now for all y'all that may have uh, like a King James version or a new King James version, they do include it in Scripture, and it's not in brackets. And the reason they do that is because the writers of that translation did not have the benefit of the later discoveries of early manuscripts. So their text is still based on the Textus Receptus, which has more transcripts that are reliable, but they're just later. 
So if you have that and it's, if it's not in brackets, that is why. They didn't have, the writers didn't have the early manuscripts. But the majority of modern English translations, if you look in your Bible, if you've got an ESV, an NIV, uh, an NAS, you'll see that 9 through 20 are in brackets. See, that's why verse 9 through 20, we're going to kind of go over a little bit of a, a lesson of, of how things get in the Bible, what was going on here. So what we see is those verses here in question, they're not found in, in the earliest Greek manuscripts called Codex Vaticanus and neither in the Codex Sinaiticus. And they also do not appear in the early translations or versions, including the Old Latin, the Sinaitic Syriac Manuscript, about a hundred Armenian manuscripts, and the two oldest Georgian manuscripts. And then we also know from the, the second century that, that Clement of Alexandria and Origen did not show signs of knowing about this so-called longer ending. And Jerome and Eusebius in the fourth century attest that verses 9 through 20 were absent from the majority of Greek copies of Mark known to them. And another, uh, as I was reading, one commentator states, uh, an ingenious system of cross-referencing parallel passages in the gospel that was devised by Ammonius in the second century and adopted by Eusebius in the fourth century does not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. So again, there are some manuscripts that include these verses but the scribal notes in those manuscripts, they clearly state that these verses were absent from the older Greek copies. And in other Greek manuscripts, there's, these verses, they're marked by asterisks to let you know that they shouldn't be there, that they're actually spurious. So when you look at all of the, the external evidence, and we'll get into a little bit more, you study this and you're going to see that these verses, they, they really started to circulate sometime in the second century and may have been composed even early on in that same century. But before I, I kind of briefly talk, because I'm not going to exegete verse 9 through 20 like I normally would, but I'll, I'll briefly touch on it. Um, but, but before we move on, I, I want to kind of let you know and, and say what, what MacArthur said about this. He says it's, it's necessary, this is a quote, it's necessary to consider the reliability of the biblical text and why the presence of variations in some biblical manuscripts is no threat to the authority, reliability, and inerrancy of Scripture. Listen to this. No ancient book has been better preserved through the centuries than the Bible. None. You see, this is, this is where you can start getting some confidence in, in what you hold in your hand, that it is the Word of God. We have more than 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament today. And they range from small fragments of, of papyri all the way up to complete codices containing all 27 books of the New Testament. And they begin in the second century. That's very early. Because the New Testament was written in the first century. Now we've already got these things. We don't have the originals. But we have the first-hand account of people that, that were disciples of the disciples that wrote it. And on and on it goes. And we have these copies. See, we, we have a Papyrus 52, which has parts of John from the year 100 to 150 A.D. You have the Bodomir Papri, which is John and Luke from 175 to 225. You all may have heard of Chester Beatty Papri. That's, that's some of uh, the gospel. It's the Gospels of Acts in the 200s. And all of that, it goes right back up and it butts up to when the actual autographs were penned through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then, to give more credibility, when you add the ancient translations such as Latin and Ethiopic, 
Now you go from 5,000 manuscripts to over 25,000 manuscripts. You see, because of the absolute uniqueness, the importance and necessity of Scripture, it has been copied and translated far more than any other literature that has ever been penned, ever. See, the printing press it didn't come around until about 1440, 1450. So before that time, ancient copyists they had to do it by hand. And they knew without a shadow of a doubt that what they were writing down, what they were putting on the, the paper, was the very words of God. And it took place over and over and over again all throughout the centuries. You know, it's been said that some scribes who, who copied the Bible, they took it so seriously that they would write one letter, go take a bath. Come back, write another letter, take a bath. And on and on and on, because they knew they were handling the Word of God, and they were frightened and terrified of making a mistake. Not only do we have uh, just an absolute plethora of Greek manuscripts, but we also have the citations of the early church fathers before, right around 325 and before. We have over 32,000 quotations and allusions from the early church fathers for the New Testament. And when you take all of those quotations, you can almost fully reconstruct the entire New Testament, just from those quotations. See, we have a tremendous amount of manuscripts that date back right to where it butts up on the second century, just a short amount of time after the originals were written. And the writings of the early church fathers, they also confirmed the accuracy of the Gospels. Because in their writings alone, you see that they've got 19,000 quotations of just the Gospels themselves. And they read the Gospel text the exact same way that you read in your Bible today. So with the overwhelming amount of early Greek manuscripts that we have and the writings of the early church fathers and the early translations and versions that we have of the New Testament, one commentator states, all this provides an abundant evidence for the original text of Scripture being preserved and protected as it was passed down. And we wouldn't question that because why would the Holy Spirit go to the trouble of inspiring it and then not providentially protect it? There's no form of ancient literature which even comes close. Not even close. You know, and, and, and if that doesn't impress you, if you, if you don't see the, the vast amount of, of what I just said, of what we have to, to make sure that we're going back and having an accurate Bible, wrap your head around this. The second most well-attested work of antiquity after the New Testament's 25,000 manuscripts is Homer's Iliad, of which we have 637 manuscripts today. And not only that, Homer wrote that in the 8th century BC. The earliest manuscript that we have of that is in the 13th century AD, some 2,000 years after it was written. And yet you go with scholars and they'll say, that is, that is true, this is true. We have the Word of God. We have all of these ancient manuscripts budding up right at the second century, an early third century. No other literature in the history of man has that kind of manuscript proof. What you hold in your hand is the very word of God. So when you look at the Bible, we have so many accurate, consistent manuscripts that we know without hesitation. We say thank you, Lord, for preserving your word. 
to continue to teach us through your word. We can have absolute confidence that what we're reading is not man's work, but the words of God Almighty. Scholar A.T. Robinson said this, The vast array of manuscripts has enabled textual scholars to accurately reconstruct the original text with more than 99.9% accuracy. How awesome is that? That is confidence in the Word of God that you hold in your hand. You know, one commentator, he, he describes why there are, there's variations. You know, there, there's certain parts, like this one right here is a variation, verses 9 through 20. Here's how he explains it. There are variations in ancient manuscripts because they were all handwritten. There were errors here and there. The good news is we know where they are because of the comparative manuscript study. Errors come from errors or inadvertent omissions, or once in a while an attempted clarification. They are minor, they are inconsequential, they are known, and where they appear, you will usually find in a modern translation an alternate reading in the margin because we know they're there and we know there's an alternate reading. And the scholars tell us the most likely accurate reading is, of course, the one included in the text and the alternate one in the margin. And I say that because I want you to know that never in the history of modern Bible scholarship has anybody tried to hide the variants. We don't hide those because it's better to know what they are and you can look at them and see they're not formidable. So we have an overwhelming body of external evidence that Mark 16, 9 through 20 should not be included in the Bible. Well, what about internal evidence? What if we look at the text itself? Is there anything internally that would say that, that this was not included, that Mark didn't write this. I'm glad you asked, because yes, there is. I mean, right out of the gate, you look back at, at verse 9, you look at verse 8 and 9, we see that the subject of verse 8 is the frightened and fleeing women. Then all of a sudden you jump to, to verse 9, and it begins by presupposing the resurrected Jesus, who appears to Mary Magdalene. And then you, you have to stop and think for a moment. It's as though in verse 9, the author is suddenly introducing us to Mary Magdalene, where in essence, he's already done that three times. He already did that in, verse, in chapter 15, verse 40, 1547, and chapter 16:1. We've already been introduced to her. We also see that Jesus is for the first time in these verses, he's referred to as the Lord Jesus, verse 19, or simply the Lord in verse 20, rather than Mark's custom of calling Jesus by his given name. And something that, that's quite noticeable as well when you, when you really study it, in verses 19, uh, 9 through 20, there are 18 New words that, that if Mark wrote it, Mark never used in the first 16 chapters and 8 verses. As well as some, some different unique word forms and syntactical constructions that he never used prior to these so-called, this longer ending. And then the reference made about Peter in verse 7 states that Jesus will go ahead of Peter and the disciples, and Jesus will appear to them in Galilee. And, and we know that Peter was the source of Mark's history, but there's nothing mentioned about Peter at all in verses 9 through 20. And then the idea of, of not believing, which is repeated three times in this ending, never appears anywhere else in Mark. And then, then you, you look at that weird verse 18, where the subject of signs with snakes and poison, uh, it's not found anywhere in any gospel. Not in any gospel at all. 
So when you look at, at all the, the vast amount of external and internal evidence, it requires the conclusion that verses 9 through 20 should not be included in Scripture and that it is not the original ending of Mark. As Eric stated last week, he finished on in verse 8. Chapter 16, verse 8, is the original ending of Mark's gospel. So then that begs the question, where did this ending come from? We don't know the actual source of the ending, but we can say that it was probably added by a scribe or scribes who thought that Mark ended his gospel way too abruptly. Just ended it, and, and this section, this added section, is trying to bring a conclusion more like the other three gospels. So we know that this section is not included in the earliest manuscripts. But we can say that whoever indeed did write this ending pulled most of it from other biblical texts. So I'm going to go over it right now. So if you want to write it, you can see where these come from. I'll, I'll say it fairly fast, but verse 9 is from Luke 8.2. Verse 10 is borrowed from John 20.18. Verse 11 is from Luke 24. 10 and 11, verses 12 and 13 is a summary of Luke 24, 13 through 35. Verse 14 is from Luke 24, 36 through 40. Verse 15 is from Matthew 28, 19 and 20, as well as Acts 1, 8. Verse 16 is from John 3.18. Verse 17 and 18, these are, they show kind of a, a strange combination of some of the promises of the miraculous power the Lord made to the disciples, except, catch this, the Lord never, ever, ever, ever stated that they could handle snakes and drink poison and not be harmed. So, so the snake thing may have very loosely come from an inaccurate trans translation of when Paul, when he was on the island of Malta in Acts 28, 3-5, he had some wood, threw it on the fire, a viper came out, attached it on his hand, and Paul shook it off and the fire was not harmed. But nowhere. And, and, and then that, that part about drinking poison. That's just weird. I mean, that's just wrong. So please, please, please listen to me. Don't think that you're a Christian and because God is on your side that you can go handle snakes and not get bit or that you can drink poison and not be harmed. That's a lie. That is not in the Bible. So please don't get anything directly out of these verses and build a theology on it. Get it out of the word of God that's inerrant infallible, life-giving, not destroying you through drinking poison or getting bit by a snake. Just want just to clarify that. I don't think anybody would do that, but uh, weirder things have been known. So, and then verse 19 and 20, they can be found in Luke 24, 51 through 53, Hebrews 1, 3, and Hebrews 2, three through four. So again, when all is said and done, the original ending of the Gospel of Mark is at chapter 16, verse eight. And verses nine through 20 are a later scribal edition attempting to bring Mark's Gospel to what the writer or writers thought was a more palatable ending to Mark's gospel. Well, when we look at the actual ending in verse 8, does anything else need to be written? I mean, when we, when we look and stop and see what Mark did, does anything else need to be said? You know, to answer that question, we need to go back to Mark 1 and see what 
Mark stated from the very beginning. Turn back to Mark 1, verse 1. And let's see, what did Mark say? He said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, Mark's purpose for writing this book was to show his readers that Jesus was and is and always will be the Son of God. And that he is the Messiah. And that he and he alone must be followed in order to have eternal life. And all throughout his gospel, Mark lays out the undeniable proof that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. So in our remaining time together this morning, what I want to do is, this, this isn't original to me, but it touched my heart, and, and as I studied it, I, I just was overwhelmed by, by Christ. So what I'm going to do is I'm going, going to go over what Pastor MacArthur did at a Shepherds Conference about 11 years ago when he had taught, because I don't know if you know this, but when he taught through the New Testament, 42 years it took him, and he said that he didn't look ahead to see what he was finishing on. He finished in the Gospel of Mark. So on a Sunday morning, he finished verse 8, and then that evening he came back and he preached on verses 9 through 20. And then several months later, he taught what he said to the church. And I was there when he taught this. Um, he, he brought it to a shepherd's conference. And so what he wants to do is point out that where it ends in verse 8, it's perfect. It's a great ending for what Mark was trying to do. He already had been proving all along that Christ was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. So let's look at this. Mark, he, he ends his gospel in chapter 16, verse 8, with the women fleeing from Jesus' empty tomb in wonder and astonishment and fear. Where else do we see these and similar emotions in the Gospel of Mark? Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to do a, a, a quick, brief whirlwind tour of where we see these emotions throughout Mark. So if you're still in chapter 1, then look at verses 21 and 22. It says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So we see that he comes on the scene and he's teaching like no one else. Everyone else would just quote scribes, but he was using authority from himself. And the people's reaction was that they were amazed. Then in verses 23 through 26, we see that Jesus, he, he encounters this demon-possessed man in the synagogue, and, and Jesus, he rebukes the demon, and he commands him to come out of this man. And you know what? The demon had to obey because Jesus Christ was his Lord as well, and he had authority to cast that demon out. And what was the people's reaction over Jesus' authority over the demons? Verse 27 says they were amazed. They couldn't believe it. His teaching was phenomenal. Now he's got authority to cast out demons? They didn't know what to do with that. They were amazed. In chapter 2, there's an event in which Jesus, he's teaching in a house. We all know the story. A crowd has gathered packed in around Jesus in the house, all around the house. And these men bring a paralytic man to be healed by Jesus. They can't get in, so they go on the roof. They dig a hole through the roof. And they lower this man down to Jesus, right in front of him. And Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And man, oh man, did that not create a huge uproar with the scribes. Because they were thinking, 
Just blasphemy. Who in the right mind can say that only God can forgive sins? And Jesus, he knew what they were saying in their hearts. So Jesus says in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And what does the man do? He gets up, he picks his pallet, and he leaves while the crowd was what? They were amazed. And in that amazement, they were glorifying God for what they just saw. Jump over to chapter 4. Jesus, he's teaching a large crowd, and in this teaching, he's using many, many parables to bring and drive points to the people. And, and later in that day, Jesus and the disciples, they get in a boat, and they're going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and, and just in a very tiny, tiny way, I know what Jesus experienced here. Jesus, you see, he was absolutely exhausted after a full day of teaching the crowd and healing people. I know when I'm done teaching here, I'm tired. And, and I do it for 45 minutes. He did it all day long, and he is healing people all day long. So we see the, the wonderful humanity of Christ. Gets in the boat, gets on a cushion up at the stern of the boat, and he falls asleep. Then what happens? This crazy storm happens, and Jesus is just calmly asleep in the stern of the boat. Verse 37 states, And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And verse 38 and following says, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. What was the disciples' reaction to Jesus' authority over nature? Verse 41 lets us know that they became very much afraid. The footnote in my study Bible says, the only thing more terrifying than having a storm outside the boat was having God inside the boat. They were terrified. They knew, who is this man? Chapter 5, we read about the demoniac that lived among the tombs. And he was crazy and he ran around, he was naked and, and he would just run around screaming and, and many times people had tried to put chains and shackles on him but he was so strong because of the demon's power that he would just break through and nobody could bind him down so he would just run through the tombs and yell and scream. And Jesus is confronted by this man and he casts out the legion of demons that were in this man and the herdsmen that saw this miracle, they run away, they go to the city, and they go to the country telling people what they had just seen. So a crowd comes back to where Jesus is, and they see the man that was possessed by these demons, clothed, seated, and in his right mind. What happens next? The people were frightened. I mean, this is amazement, fear, and awe. What just happened? How can this take place from this man? It's unbelievable. Continuing on in chapter 5, verses 25 through 34, we read about the woman that had a hemorrhage for 12 years in her body. 12 years, and, and here she is. She, she's heard about Jesus, and she thinks to herself, oh, if somehow I can just get close to him, if I can just touch his garment, I know that I'll be healed. I know it. So the time comes and there's a crowd gathered around Jesus. She comes up behind him. She touches his garment. And immediately she knew she was healed. And Jesus stops. 
because he knew that power had flowed out of his body. He turns around to the crowd and said, who touched me? And the disciples say, what are you talking about, Lord? I mean, look at all these people. What do you mean, who, who touched you? But he looks at the woman. And she knew. She knew that she could not get away. So in verse 33, the woman was fearing and trembling because she knew that she had been healed. And she came and fell at Jesus' feet and told him the whole truth. Still in chapter 5, we see the account of of Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead by Jesus. In Mark, I'm sorry, in, in verse 41, Mark wrote, Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And what was their response of everyone that saw this miracle? They were immediately, completely astounded. This man raised someone from the dead. So thus far in this brief overview of Mark, we've seen that Jesus, he has power and authority over demons, over nature, over death, over disease, and his teaching is like no one else. And the crowd's responses are always, they're amazed, afraid, frightened, filled with fear and trembling and astounded never seen anyone like the Lord Jesus Christ. These were the reactions of the people who encountered Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's keep going and look at chapter 6. Verse 45 through 52 is another time that Jesus calms the storm, the winds of, of the Sea of Galilee. See, they, he had another time of... of ministering to people, and he sends the disciples on ahead of him to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's on the shore. He looks out, and he realizes that they're struggling at the oars. So he comes to them, walking on the water, which is a miracle in itself. Then he gets into the boat, and the wind stops, and the disciples are astonished. Chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, records the miracle of Jesus healing a man that was deaf and who had difficulty speaking. The crowd's response is found in verse 37. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Chapter 9, when Jesus is transfigured, and his garments become radiant and exceedingly white. Peter, James, and John were terrified. Chapter 9, 14, and 15 states, when they, meaning Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came down from the mountain, and now they're seeing the people that are gathered around. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and subscribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. Chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, Mark penned, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him continue to see fear, awe, and amazement over Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Chapter 10, verse 24. We see that the disciples were amazed by Jesus' words. Chapter 10, 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. In chapter 11, 15 through 18, there's a scene in which Jesus, he, he enters the temple and he looks around and he sees all of the nonsense that was taking place. And so he turns over the table of the money changers, kicks over the stools of people selling doves. He wouldn't let people buy and sell in the temple. If they had merchandise walking through the temple, he stopped them. He said, no way. 
And in verse 18 we read, the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jumping over to chapter 12. Verse 17, when Jesus proclaimed, Render to Caesar what Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The Pharisees and Herodians were amazed at him. Then we see in chapter 15, Jesus before Pilate. And the Jewish religious leaders, they're piling on accusations against Christ. And in verse 4, Pilate questioned Jesus and says, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? Verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. And then we get to the final chapter, Mark 16. And we see that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, had arrived at Jesus' tomb. And in verses 4 and 5, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were, what? Amazed. One commentator says, in, in ten of those passages, the same verb was used, phobeo. They were amazed. In five of them, a cognate of that verb was used and elsewhere, synonyms were used. And then lastly, chapter 16, verse 8. We see where Mark wrote about the women. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. What a marvelous ending to the Gospel of Mark, who all along the way, from the very front, from the very beginning, his outset was to tell you the beginning of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he gave us proof after proof after proof that indeed Jesus was the Son of God, that he had power over nature, power to forgive sins, power over disease, power over death, power over demons. Pile it on over and over again. Jesus Christ is the Messiah the son of the living God. So Mark is speechless. The women at the end are speechless over the great God they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It just ends with amazement. Think about it. Every lesson that Jesus had ever taught, every miracle that he performed, every answer that he gave to his opponents, every compassionate, righteous act he bestowed upon others, and every righteous word that ever came out of his mouth should fill us all with astonishment, amazement, and they should leave us speechless and in awe and wonder like the fleeing women from the tomb. Are you amazed by the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you read the word of God and you're blown away at how holy and righteous and just he is? And that he loves sinners so much that he came that he left his abode in heaven to become a man, to die a brutal death on the cross, to rise again three days later, to sit at the right hand of God where he intercedes on your behalf if you're a believer, Right now, he's interceding for you. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I beg you, I urge you, today is the day of salvation. Only Jesus Christ can save you from eternity spent in hell because of what I already said, what he did on the cross. He lived a life that was perfect, never once sinned. Bled, died, rose again. And God's wrath was wiped away for all of those that will, with their mouth, confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus Christ did on your behalf 
on the cross. If that's you, I beg you today, cry out that God will have mercy on your soul and open your dead heart to be alive, your heart of stone to be a heart of flesh. And only God can do that. Not by works, but by faith in Jesus alone. And if there's anyone here that, that needs to talk more about what salvation is, I'm more than willing after we close in prayer, you can come up and talk to me because I'd love to, to talk to you about having eternal life with the Son of God. And as I stated earlier, may we as believers never, ever grow wearisome of learning more and more about our great, magnificent Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is that we have your word left behind, that we can study it and we can know with certainty that what we hold in our hand is the very word of God. Lord, we thank you that you, through your Holy Spirit, that you made sure that all throughout the centuries that your word did not change, that your word is true as it was when it was written originally. It's the same truth today. May we live by it. May we study it. May we breathe it. May we bleed your word, Father. May we take your gospel truth to this world that is so desperately needing it. People are dying and going to hell every day, Lord. May that stir something deep within us. May we have compassion. May, may we not agree with sinners, but the sinners are not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. Sinners are the mission field. Lord, may we have compassion towards our, our friends, our family members, our, our co-workers, people that, that are strangers, that aren't saved. Lord, bring divine appointments our way each and every day so that you will continue to grow your kingdom one soul at a time. And if there's one person in here today, Lord, that isn't saved, prick their heart as we speak. Be the hound of heaven. Seek after them, Lord, because we know that you sent your son to seek and save that which was lost. Let them know the condition of their heart, that their heart is wicked and evil, and only you can change that through them repenting, which is turning away from their sin and turning to God, and believing that Christ's death on the cross paid their sin and embrace that so that they can have eternal life in you. Father, thank you for such a great salvation that you've given us. May we rejoice in that salvation daily and give you praise and glory through the blessed name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.